0: Hi, my name is Trevor O'Keefe, and I'm the pastor at Olive Branch Christian Fellowship. We're a Jesus-loving Bible church who are committed to studying the words of Jesus, walking in the ways of Jesus, and partnering in the mission of Jesus. Thanks for joining us on that journey today. And Jesus, today as a church, we gather and we remember the fulfillment of something that you promised your people. That we wouldn't follow just principles or an example, but that we would be mobile carriers of the Spirit of God. That you would indwell us and from the inside out transform us. That you would write on the tablets of our heart the things that you desire. And so Jesus, today we thank you for the great gift of your Holy Spirit. And Holy Spirit, we turn your direction and say, come and fill our lives. We invite you, transform us into the image of Christ. And we invite you right now to speak to us through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, the first Sunday of the month, we always have our youth group uh, that typically gathers separate from us. They stick with us uh, as we celebrate communion. So I'm going to have Jeremy, who helps to lead that group, come up and read this morning's passage. So if you have a Bible, Luke 23 is where you want to turn.
1: All right. Good morning, church. So give you guys a sec to get to this uh Section. And I just want to say thank you for those who have kids for uh, trusting me and Ashlyn. Um, It's a huge privilege. We love it so much. And thank you. Thank you. So, yeah, Luke 23 13 through 25. So, then Pilate, when he had called them together, the chief priests, the rulers, and the people said to them, You have brought this man to me as one who misleads the people and indeed having examined him in your presence i have found no fault in this man concerning those things of which you accuse him no neither did herod for i sent him back t- or i sent you back to him and indeed nothing deserving a death has been done by him i will therefore chastise him and release him for it was necessary for him to release one To them at the feast, and they all cried out at once, saying, Away with this man, and release to us Barabbas, who had been thrown into prison for a certain rebellion made in the city, and for murder. Pilate, therefore, wishing to release Jesus, again called out to them, but they shouted, saying, Crucify him! Crucify him! Then he said to them the third time, Why, what evil has he done? And I have found him no reason for death. I will therefore chastise him and let him go. But they were insistent, demanding with loud voices that he be crucified. And with the voices of these men and the chief priests prevailed. So Pilate gave sentence that it, would, it should be as they requested. And he released to them the one they requested, who for rebellion and murder had been thrown into prison. But he delivered Jesus to their will. And now we're going to skip down to verse 32. There were also two others, criminals, led with him to be put to death. And when they had come to the place called Calvary, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on the right hand and the other on the left. Then Jesus said to them, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do.
0: Thank you. We jump into a new series today that were even titled the crux. Dictionary.com defines crux as the decisive or most important thing. If you looked at Merriam-Webster, it it would define it as the supremely critical thing, the crux. Synonyms.com kind of sheds some light on our brief discussion on the meaning of this term, the crux, by saying that it's also comparable to the bottom line. Or the central or main thing, the essential part, the most important thing, the core, the center, the nucleus, the essence, the heart of the matter. Your nerdy fun fact of the day is that our English words crucial and cross, I'm sorry, crucial and crux, both actually come from the Latin word for cross. That the Latin word for cross is crux. And then our use of those words and our definitions of crucial and crux are shaped and defined by the fact that the crucial, think of this, the central theme, the crux of the Christian message is the cross. You see, the crux is the crucial central thing that cannot be removed or the thing itself would cease to exist. It's the cross. Think of it is that crucial, central thing that cannot be removed or Christianity itself ceases to exist. So our goal as a church for the summer is to slow down and consider the cross together as we've reached this climactic moment in our journey through Mark's gospel over the last year and a half. We finally arrived at the cross, and so we're not going to rush our way through it. Instead, we're going to slow down to consider what it teaches us about God, what it teaches us about humanity, what it means for a lost person who still is separated from God, and then it, what it also speaks to someone today who's a follower of Jesus. You know, as we've walked through Mark's gospel, we've discussed what Jesus said about the cross, his looming suffering, even emphasizing that he said he must suffer. But what we're going to do now in this series is we're going to focus on what Jesus said while, what Jesus said during his suffering on the cross. And if we're going to talk about what Jesus spoke on the cross, may I first remind you very quickly of what happened to Jesus leading to the cross. From the Bible, the four Gospels, we know that he's been through an awful lot leading up to the moment that he would be placed in a cross and elevated upright. Beginning with agony that he'd face in the Garden of Gethsemane. You remember, Gethsemane? it means the press. It's, It's a place where the olives on the Mount of Olives would be pressed and crushed. And in the same way, Jesus would go there to be crushed as he'd begin to feel the weight of our sin upon him and find himself underneath the shadow of the cross in that moment. He then was arrested and taken by the religious leaders. They place a bag over his head and they mock him and beat him and say, prophesy, which one of us is it that hits you? And then he's turned over to the Romans, what we just read, where he'd be scourged with a cat of nine tails, where they would lean on him to confess crimes, but like a lamb before its shears, is silent. You remember the scripture said, rightly said, he'd utter not a word in that moment. Remember, Roman historians, they refer to those who endured that scourging as the half-dead, as people that they no longer classified as living, and yet they weren't quite dead yet, but they knew that there was no way for them to recover. They were halfway there, and there was no turning back. A crown of thorns was mockingly placed on his head and beat into place. A robe was on his back as they mocked him. All hail the king. And then they mocked and spit upon him, your scriptures tell you. He'd carried the cross towards the place called Calvary or Golgotha, the place of the skull, a place you can still visit today that the, the stone that would have been a backdrop behind Jesus looks like the face of a skull. It was the place of death. And there they ripped the robe off his back, reopening wounds again and piercing his hands and his feet, nailing him to a cross. All of this is really difficult for me personally to understand or even to begin to try to picture as a modern person because inhumane behavior and and the treatment of others like this is something that's illegal, whereas in Jesus' day, this was not illegal. This was actually carried out by the law. In fact, it's author Fleming Rutledge in her book about the cross that said it this way. She said that crucifixion sent an unmistakable signal that this person that you see before you is not fit to live. They're not even human. As the Romans had put it, such a person person was damnatio ad bestias, meaning condemned to the death of a beast. And having suffered so much pain and blood loss, Jesus would spend six hours on a cross. And during that six-hour period, the Gospels record seven different statements that Jesus would make. And you need to know that each time he spoke, it was with great labor and even agony and pain as he'd lift his body up to inhale and breathe deep and hold himself up to exhale and speak and say these words. Each one of these statements provides, I think, in a sense, a window into the mind and into the heart of God in this moment so that we can see what God was thinking and feeling while he was on the cross. And it's true that on the cross, Jesus would take the fall for his enemies, but what I want to remind you today, what our text, his very first statement from the cross reminds us today, is of the request that he would make for his enemies. Jesus' first statement from the cross is uh, it's there recorded for you in Luke 23, verse 34, where Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. There's some commentators and linguists who point to the sentence structure that's recorded in the Greek language of this statement of Jesus, and they say that the sentence structure would imply that this is something that Jesus said again and again, not just once, but many times over. And so we picture Jesus. Maybe even as far back as when he was first being whipped, saying, Father, forgive. But we picture him once he arrives at the place where they crucify him, where they lay him down on a cross and where he cries out, forgive them, as they nail his hands and then his feet to the cross. As they continue to mock him and place him upright and the weight of his body begins to pull down on those nails, we hear him say, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. For me, my Bible functions in a sense a bit like a journal because I've had it for many years, and, and next to each passage are, are little notes from the years of reading through the text, but also notes at times that have dates and, and information about places or things I'm praying about. And, and next to this passage in Luke 23 is a little note that I saw and was reminded of this week. From 2019 in the summer, I was reading through this passage, and my daughter Riley, who at that point had just turned seven, came in and asked me, Dad, what are you reading? And so I told her about Jesus, this moment where he makes this request to his father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And then I asked her, seven-year-old Riley, "Ry, if this was you and you hadn't done anything wrong, and yet they tied you up, they beat you, and they hung you on a cross, said, Rai, what would you say to God in that moment? She thought for a moment, and then she said, send lightning bolts. And then I said, Rye, what would you say, though, to your dad? She just said, Daddy, please help me. This is a crazy moment. God himself among us, mocked and beaten for sport, And he begins to pray, forgive. Author A.W. Pink, he writes and says, No longer might those hands minister to the sick, for they are now nailed to the cross. No longer may those feet carry him on mercy, or errands of mercy, for they are fastened to that cruel tree. No longer may he engage in instructing the apostles, for they have forsaken him and fled. How then will he occupy himself in the ministry of prayer? What a lesson for us, he said. I mean, think of this prayer. There's no resentment in his voice or even on his mind, or he would have requested judgment from God. There's no self-pity in his heart, or his request would have been made to the soldiers who had gathered around him. But instead, he prayed, and what he prayed is astounding. Father, forgive them. It's not surprising, is it, that Jesus' first words were a prayer. It doesn't surprise any of us by this point in the gospel, but what does surprise us is who his prayer was for. It wasn't for himself or even for his friends. He prayed for his enemies. We picture the religious leaders who are still present mocking him. Their words are recorded. The soldiers who had just finished mercilessly beating him, who seem to be entertained by the whole thing. It's a crowd who's gathered, standing by, waiting and wanting to watch him die don't miss the shock and significance of jesus praying for his enemies in this moment because historians make this really clear that that there were many many people that the romans in this era would have crucified in fact it would be shortly after this that historians would begin to record that you could not find a tree even in this region because all of them had been turned into uh, turned into crosses turned into uh, articles of execution which leaves me really confident when you think about it, that this was not the first time that this crowd saw someone die like this. But on the other hand, it's absolutely the first time they've seen someone face death like this. For others who shared Jesus' fate of dying on a cross, their screams in agony, which I assume Jesus would have shared, but for them, theirs turned into requests for mercy to everyone who gathered around them. And when they didn't receive the mercy they wanted, those requests for mercy instantly became, they quickly turned into vile cursing of all who stood by, but not Jesus. Instead, in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 23, it says, who when he was reviled, did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but he committed himself into the hands of him who judges righteously. Jesus, in that moment, he didn't curse them, berate them, or condemn them. He prayed for them, and he prayed, Father, would you forgive them? There's no exceptions, there's no exclusions to his prayer. He's looking out and saying in this broken moment, forgive them. Remember in Jesus' most famous sermon, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus had said something about this. I'll quote to you from Jesus' own words. He said, you've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you that you may be sons of your Father in heaven, for he makes his Son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. In Isaiah 53, in verse 12, the prophet foretold of this very moment, saying that heaven's promised Savior would make intercession for the transgressors. But who would have thought he'd make it in this moment from a cross? saying, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Here is the God-man, God the Son, Christ Jesus, praying to God the Father. In the book, The Cross-Shattered Christ, the author notes that these words, Father, forgive, are nothing less than the interior life of the triune God made visible to the eyes of faith. That we're seeing this amazing, intimate relationship with God that, that's, that's communing. It's God the Son speaking to the Father, forgive, he said. There's a few observations I want to make with you today that, that I want to point out about what we learn about who God is from this prayer. And the first is this, it's that he's accessible. The first thing that we learn from this, I think, is that he is so very accessible. You see, Jesus' prayers were provocative in the first century, at least in two different ways. The first is that Jesus would pray in the common language of the people. In fact, later it will record for us one of his other statements from the cross is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And in Mark's gospel specifically, he'll notate that he said it in Aramaic, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. In Aramaic, the the street language of the day. Mark is sure to include that detail because it was unique and shocking and something that would have surprised everyone who could hear Jesus cry out to his Father. That he did it, in a sense, in an informal manner. Because in that culture and time, no one would address God in their common language. For them, prayer had become this very formal, strictly Hebrew time to talk nice to God. But Jesus changed that. He removed that formal feeling and addressed God personally and freely. It's beautiful because it reminds us of our invitation to pray, not as it being this stiff and formal time for me to talk nice to God, but my invitation to be real and honest and open with God, that maybe I can be more real and honest and open and vulnerable with him than anyone else. It's that he prayed in the common language. That was the shock. The other shock, though, is that Jesus would address God as his father I mean, way back at the beginning of the book, think about how jarring this is. At the beginning of the book, God was separated from man because of sin. And Adam and Eve were removed from the garden with an angel and a fiery sword, judging or guarding that gate and keeping them safe from judgment. You fast forward to Moses shuddering before a burning bush. Fast forward yet again and you find Moses going up on top of a mountain to receive the law and a cloud encapsulating that mountain and people being so afraid to even come so close as to touch the mountain, much less get close to God. We think of then the tabernacle coming on the heels of that, a time and era marked with blood and fear, and then a temple that's set up with even more blood and fear attached to it with one man, the high priest, once a year going into the presence of God. But when he did, there's no way he entered to address God as a father. He went in with a sacrifice, seeking that God would just extend forgiveness and mercy for another year. But Jesus comes and addresses God as his father, and he not only invites us, he then instructs us as his disciples, his followers, to do the same. Think of that. He comes addressing God as his father. He doesn't just invite us. He instructs us, Matthew chapter 6, when you pray. Pray our father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. This was provocative. This was shocking. This was unheard of. This was unthinkable. Even today, there's no other religion in the world that addresses their God with such intimate terms as that of father. I have three little ones in my life that call me dad. And it is such a gift. It's it's the high point of my day to come home from work, or I guess now mostly working from home. It's typically they come home from school and find me at home. But especially our youngest, she still likes me and it, you know, thinks I'm great. And so she's especially excited. She's only five. So for her, when I'm home working in my back office, she'll come in the door and typically makes a beeline straight for me. And I hear her before she even has arrived, because she's already yelling, Daddy, Daddy, and I hear the joy in her voice. It's a game changer being a dad, having a child. It's a game changer. I mean, I've never, ever since having our first child, I I no longer hear someone say that they slept like a baby and have the same imagery I used to have. Now I just think you cried all night and then had a blowout at 3 a.m. But also, it really changed my understanding and experience of love. I'll never forget when Riley was first born. And everybody said birth, it's this amazing miracle of beauty and like, no, it's terrifying. But I remember when they handed me that little Eskimo baby with her little swollen cheeks and swollen eyes. And I remember just holding her in that first moment and being so struck with the kind of instinctive, intuitive love that I had for her. I mean, for, for Lindsay and I in our marriage, Love is something we have, yes, but love is something we promised each other. Love is something that we strive to work for, that we practice at times that we intentionally choose to do what's loving, even though we don't always feel it. She makes it easy for me to love her because she's lovable, but it's still a choice and a process in our marriage to grow in our love. But it was so different with our children. That first moment holding them, there was no process involved, no discussion, no agreement, no papers or contract, no public vow back and forth between the two of us. I just held them and loved them naturally, instinctively, without measure or reason. I loved them because they're mine. Because this was my daughter Riley, my child, and she didn't earn my love, and she'll never have to earn my love because I already loved her because she's mine. Oh, behold, 1 John chapter 3, what? Man or the love the Father has bestowed on us that we would be called the children of God. This is the imagery we're invited into. For Jesus to come along and address God as his Father and then to do more than just invite us to do the same, but to take it so far as to instruct us as his followers to do the same was radically revolutionary and gives a radical revelation of the character and nature of God. Jesus crying out, even in a terrible moment like this, it reminds me how accessible my God is, how near he is, how available he chooses to be to me, his child, that I can address him even as a father. But the second thing that this moment reminds me and shows me about God is that he's so gracious. That's the second thing, that he's gracious Not just in that Jesus would address God as a father and instruct me to do so as well, but look at the content of what the request is here of his father. Jesus says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. But in order for them to be forgiven, Jesus has to take upon himself their condemnation. He's really praying in this moment, Father, take me. Let me accept me in their place. You see, at the cross, our God proves himself to be both merciful and at the same time also just. But he does it by mercifully extracting justice from his loving son, whom would bear our sin and his judgment in place of us. It's not a new thing. God has always wanted all throughout Scripture to show mercy to his people. He always revealed himself as merciful and gracious, even willing to forgive. And in this moment, Jesus on the cross provides the means for our forgiveness and of his grace. In the moment, though, you can't help but wonder if if a part of this is Jesus crying out to the Father because it's almost too much for the Father to bear where we picture God in heaven, the Father, rising from his throne, ready to respond, ready to intervene. Much like Moses crying out to God to spare the people rather than to step in and bring justice that they deserved and judgment that was looming, Jesus in this moment seems to be intervening and saying, No, Dad, we knew that this is what it would take. We saw this coming. Let's finish this. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He's not making a statement here that people are innocent. He wasn't making an excuse for the people. Remember, Pilate would wash his hands, believing that they were soiled because an innocent man, at his demand, was being turned over to be executed. It's Judas who, remember, because of his guilt, because he knew that this was an innocent man, he took that blood money and threw it back at the religious leaders and used those same tainted hands to grab a rope to take his own life. No one was there or is today innocent. And yet Jesus is here saying, Father, forgive them, for they don't understand the dark depths of what they're doing. They don't foresee the magnitude of what they're guilty of. Forgive them because they need it so desperately. Forgive them for their need is great beyond their knowing, and I am great beyond their understanding. You see, they all understood that they were crucifying an innocent man But the rest of your Bible, the New Testament, in Acts chapter 3 and in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, tell us that they did not know that they were crucifying the God-man. Please don't miss miss this. The, the, The message of this prayer is so very simple. It's that you can be forgiven. It's that God offers forgiveness, which may feel or sound simple, but when you live some life, you realize forgiveness is what we long for. Colossians chapter 2 paints this gorgeous picture of the courtroom of God, where God is on the stand as judge. But then as the scene opens, it's that I find myself, I'm the one seated beneath the judge, I'm on trial. And then there's a lawyer, a a, a person who's there as the accuser, it calls them. It's our enemy, Satan. The liar, the deceiver, who stands up with a whole bunch of evidence against me. And he's demanding a just God to bring judgment and justice over me. Give me what I deserve. But it's then when Jesus, in the courtroom of God in Colossians chapter 2, he stands up and takes the handwriting of ordinances against me, all of that evidence, and it says that he wiped out the proof. He's taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross with him. It's Jesus standing up and saying, All of these crimes, all of this evidence has a nail print through the center. For I have already paid for all that Trevor has done against you. You can forgive him. He can go free. Reminds me of Martin Luther and this story that emerges out of church history of him while he was in the process of bringing about the great reformation and standing up for the scriptures and grace. And during that time, he tells a story that he was visited alone in an upper room by Satan himself, who, who began to accuse him. Luther, who do you think you are? You have your lustful thoughts. You've hated your brother in your heart. You've envied your, your brother's or your neighbor's possessions. And on and on he went, accusation after accusation. Luther quickly, in the story, picked up a pen and began to write each of those accusations, those rightful accusations that our enemy brought against him. And then when Satan had ceased, he asked him, is that it? And when there was no response, he wrote over the top of all of those accusations, washed in the blood of the Lamb. That is what this is telling me. Father, forgive them. Christ himself is saying, take me in their place. You see, as a follower of Jesus, I might be guilty of all of those things that would land on a list. But the truth is, as a follower of Jesus, I've been forgiven of all of those things. And sin is no longer a part of the equation in my relationship with God himself. But before we move on, please hear me. It's beautiful that in this moment that Jesus asked for heaven's best, for even his enemies, and he asked it with complete confidence that the Father would give it. He was perfectly sure that forgiveness was available for each one of them. But think of the contrast, because when in the garden, Jesus prayed, when he prayed for himself, he prayed with a condition. He prayed with an if. He prayed in the garden for himself, saying, if there is any other way. But on the cross, he did not ask the Father for forgiveness if forgiveness was possible. Because Jesus knew what was already in the Father's heart, that he desired forgiveness. So Jesus, in perfect confidence, would ask for heaven's best for even his enemies when he prayed, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He's accessible. He's gracious. But it also shows me just how personal he is. That's the third and final thing, that he's personal. You see, I think you and I were represented that day around the cross, yes, represented in that crowd for sure. Our sin has made you and I as guilty as they were in that moment. But I think we weren't just represented by the crowd, by the multitude, by a grouping, but I think we find ourselves singularly, personally, represented individually even by the person Barabbas. You see, we just read his story, and as we had made our way through Mark's gospel, I told you we'll find our way back to this because we had run out of time, and this is the, the morning, the day where we find our way back to Barabbas' story. Because Pilate will make a suggestion on that morning where he'll condemn Jesus to die, there's a custom of releasing prison, prisoners in Jerusalem at Passover known as the Pascal pardon where Pilate would offer to release a prisoner to try to win over the favor of the crowds, and he offers them to release Barabbas, a man deserving of death, and in his place and literally on his cross to put Jesus there to suffer. And in the end, that's what the crowd chooses, and Pilate gives him over to their will. And so what's happening when Jesus goes to the cross has a huge, broad scope and impact. It eternally affects everyone, all of creation will never be the same because of that cross. But at the same time, that impact goes from massive and global, even universal, to all of a sudden shifting all the way down to become so small and deeply personal. That's why not just the story of Barabbas is included in the gospel. It's why the substitution for Barabbas takes place in Jesus' story. It's because it illustrates that, yes, a monstrous work is being accomplished by Jesus in this moment, but it's also showing us that it is an individual work in its application. It's an individual work in that it will personally impact the lives of individuals. I mean, you could view an aspect of this as being that Jesus wasn't just there to get on a cross to rescue all of creation. He was determined to be there that morning to keep Barabbas off that cross himself to rescue an individual. Barabbas is a person we don't know much about other than it tells us he's an insurrectionist. He's being tried for rebellion against the authority that's over him. Even one of the gospel writers mentions that he's murdered someone. Matthew refers to Barabbas only as a notorious prisoner, so we assume that he was well known for his actions. Mark and Luke refer to Barabbas as one involved in inciting a riot. And John 1840 refers to Barabbas as a bandit. It's a word that the historian Josephus uses that he employs when talking about revolutionaries, when talking about people who are trying to overthrow the government to lead a revolution. Think of the contrast, Jesus, the great revolutionary, motivated and driven with a weapon of love to establish peace. And here we find the world system We find one that's just trying to do what everyone else in the world has done, to topple the current system with a new system. It's a new ruler with the same rules. He's trying to overthrow those in power and using the same force, the same sword that they're using. The interesting thing is that there's an early 2nd century church historian and theologian by the name of Origen who gives us the detail that Barabbas' full name was actually Jesus Barabbas. And some of the oldest manuscripts of the Bible in several different languages actually record it for us as Jesus Barabbas. It seems that what origin hints at is that they strike Jesus from the ancient text because it was too confusing for people as they read it that Jesus took the place of Jesus Barabbas. They would get thrown by it because Jesus was such a common name back then. People would name their children Jesus because it was a tip of the cap to the ancient hero Joshua, Yeshua, the Savior in the Old Testament. Now, when you think about it, though, Jesus Barabbas. Barabbas is actually two Hebrew words pushed together. Some of you, your minds are already going there that Bar means son of and Abba means a father. Jesus, the son of an earthly father who knows how the world system works who raises a sword and sheds blood to, f- to find himself fighting for power, has his place taken by Jesus, the son of a heavenly father, who would raise no sword, but would extend his arms in an expression, an example of love. Jesus, the son of a heavenly father, taking the place of Jesus, the son of an earthly father. One who is innocent, was tried and punished for the crimes of one who was not. Barabbas, I think, represents all of humanity and one single person who, for rebellion, who was guilty, who had been shameful, who was deserving of judgment and of death, Jesus would say, I'll take that place. It illustrates perfectly a theological discussion that takes place later in the gospel, or later in the epistles, excuse me, later in the New Testament, in regards to the first Adam and the last Adam, some terminology the Apostle Paul will utilize. What Paul says is that all of humanity is represented and traced back to a federal figurehead in the Garden of Eden, Adam himself. And that from Adam we inherit a sinful fallen nature as sons and daughters of Adam. But then Paul will say, but there is a second Adam, a last Adam in Jesus who arrive born not of the seed of man, but born of a virgin, conceived of the Holy Spirit, living out in perfection and sinlessness, becoming a substitute in sacrifice. And by faith, as we receive Jesus, he becomes our figurehead as the last Adam. Our life and identity are now wrapped up in his, where we no longer are identified, just under the figurehead of Adam from the garden. We're now found in the identity, not the son of the earthly father, but a son of a heavenly father who too would go to a garden. But rather than choosing what was easiest for him or most convenient or what would empower him the most, like Adam had done, Jesus would choose a self-emptying love to give for us. It's First Corinthians chapter 15, verse 22, where it says, just as everyone dies because we all belong to Adam, everyone who belongs to Christ will be given new life. 1 Corinthians 15, 45, the scripture tells us the first man, Adam, became a living person, but last Adam, that is Christ, is a life-giving spirit. There is this deep and profound theological picture, a perfect picture here that we get to look at, and and for us, it's it's awe-inspiring, it's beautiful, but then when we stop for a moment, we realize it's the perfect picture, but it's, it's hideous. Perfect picture. It's horrendous. Horrendous. It lacks beauty. It's an ugly moment. I don't know if you remember, like I do, the first time maybe that you sat and watched the Passion of the Christ, where all of a sudden Jesus displayed, or Jesus is displayed in his interaction with Pilate, and then comes the moment where Pilate motions, and entering stage right comes Barabbas, this evil, vile individual who's filthy. And, and continues to revile the crowd and spit at them. He's mocking them. Just the sight of him, I remember seeing the film, just the sight of him made me dislike this guy. I just felt like he's so evil, and, and everything in me thought, there's no way, Jesus, there's no way. And that's when Pilate stands up and suggests, I could release to you this one, and in his place, place Jesus on his cross. And I remember sitting there watching it and gritting my teeth and, and having probably a very sour look on my face because I despised this guy in my heart and thought, this is disgusting and deplorable. This is despicable. This should never happen. He's unworthy, and worse still, he just seems unappreciative. There's nothing about this moment that's endearing. But then maybe you were like me, and in that movie theater, I realized that it was me who stood there. as wicked and undesirable as he was, in my perspective. I know that I should have looked that way in God's. But God saw me so different. Please hear me. The beauty of the moment is that Barabbas was not released from the debt and penalty of his crimes because of the request request of some crowd. He was released and forgiven because of the love of a heavenly father who willingly would give his son in his place. But the father had to treat Jesus like Barabbas in order to treat Barabbas like Jesus. For Jesus to set him free, he, Jesus, had to take his place. God couldn't ignore the crimes and he wouldn't or forget the debt. Instead, he paid the debt with his own blood. God had have a perfect solution, but it was a costly solution, not just to rescue Barabbas, but to rescue me, because I was pictured there as a son of an earthly father who thinks I know how to save it all, who thinks I know how to make it right. Yeah, call me Yeshua too, because I've got a plan. Let me use the world system. All get to the top. But then the one, the son of a heavenly father comes and with perfect love intervenes and takes my place. It would cost a father to watch his son bleed to death. It would cost the son his very life. And all of a sudden in that story, I think God's love for us becomes deeply personal when he says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. I think if this moment with Barabbas is meant to take the massive, global, even universal work within all of creation, if it's meant to take all that the cross is accomplishing for all of creation, for all of eternity to come, if it's turning it into also a deeply personal moment, then there's a couple takeaways I just want to give you as we transition towards communion. The first is this. That if this is true, then the story of Barabbas invites us to see Jesus' crucifixion in terms of a deeply personal exchange. To find myself personally in this story, yes, a mess, yes, undeserving, overwhelmed by shame, but also seeing God's love for me in this story. Because for Barabbas, for me to be treated like Jesus, welcomed as a son of God, the father had to treat Jesus like Barabbas. He had to suffer for my sin. You see, this is the story of the love of God doing for us what we could never, ever do for ourselves. Church, as I remind you often, the Christian message is that we're far worse than we'd ever imagine, and yet simultaneously far more loved than we'd ever hoped or dreamed. And this is a portrait of that moment where we're somehow fully known and yet fully loved. The story here, it it challenges me in a second area, and that's that the story of Barabbas challenges me to see other people in light of Jesus' deeply personal love for them too. As I was pondering this story this week, this was part of the impact in my own life, was that, yes, I wasn't just seeing myself the same, because all of a sudden I'm seeing myself as being the recipient of the amazing, rescuing love of God and so thankful for that. But it also challenged me to see other people around me differently, whether they were strangers or people I knew, or honestly, people who have wronged me or that bother me. That I'm seeing them like Barabbas. Yeah, they bug me. I don't like looking that dirt, But there's someone that Jesus has loved, deeply loved, and went to a cross to rescue. Yes, they have their flaws and shortcomings, maybe even things about them that are unlovely or seem unlovable to you. But they are loved tremendously by God, and they're deserving then as image bearers that he has paid a deep price to redeem, they're worthy of my respect and patience, my care and my love, even my forgiveness. If God is able to love them and willing to forgive them at great cost and expense to himself, then I must be at least willing to open my heart to forgiveness and to releasing resentment and to choosing to be gracious and patient and to try again to love. As I pray, Father, make me into the person you desire me to be. Shape my heart, make me able, empower me to be able to love and to forgive even when it's hard. Remember in the Gospels, Jesus would teach that that we are to forgive 70 times 7. When you think about it, there are some wounds in your life that it honestly feels like you've forgiven someone so many times for that you lose count of. But to forgive them means staying on a pathway of forgiveness and walking that painful, lonely path, that costly path, all the way to find freedom on the other side. It was Jesus who also told a story about a man who'd been forgiven so much and yet held a smaller, much smaller debt against someone else. Yes, that debt was valid, but in comparison to what the other man had been forgiven of, How could he hold that against him? The imagery, the lesson, is that I have to choose to learn to look at the wrongs done to me through the lens of what I have done to God and what he has graciously done for me to forgive me. And to find in that the power and the transforming freedom that comes from the gospel, that I am freed to forgive, though costly, though painful, that I can see people different the way that Jesus sees them. This is the last thing as we transition to communion. That's that the story of Barabbas reminds us to follow Jesus with faith and confidence in his perfect substitution and love. That as we follow him, we should have a confidence in his perfect substitution and love. Because this is a beautiful truth and reminder that God offers us salvation, not because we've earned it or deserved it, but because he loved us. And for those of you who've received it, can I just remind you today to continue daily to receive and experience the power, the gift of forgiveness. You see, for me to beat myself up about my sin is saying that what Christ does in this moment for me on a cross was not enough. But I am, you are, as followers of Jesus, forgiven. You see, the imagery is that so often he approaches me and takes my handcuffs, my shackles off, and that I fight with him, saying, no, I deserve this. Jesus, no, I've, I've worked hard to earn this. It's that he removes my shame, and yet I'm reaching for it still, saying, no, I'm ready to wallow under that, because, Jesus, it's what I deserve, that tag, that title, those insults, those names, the way that I view myself. So, that, Jesus, I've earned that. I've deserved that said, he pays for our forgiveness, and yet I live my life defeated. But he gently whispers in that moment, as he takes my place, as he did with Barabbas, Trevor, give me your sin. Trevor, hand over your shame. Trevor, you're going to get to go free. Because the Father would treat Jesus as Barabbas. Barabbas could now be treated as Jesus, a son, welcomed. It's the father saying, you don't deserve it. You're right, you'll never earn it, but I never asked you to. You're free. Quit living, feeling crushed under the pressure of trying to earn and deserve it. I've loved you as a father loves his child instinctive, intuitively. It was there." It's a love that's never been contingent upon your performance, and it never will be, my child. Jesus, having suffered so much pain and blood loss, will spend six hours on the cross, but as that clock begins, his first statement was heard loud and clear, Father, forgive them. So Jesus, we thank you today. Jesus, we thank you that you asked heaven's best with complete confidence even for your enemies, knowing that this was always in the Father's heart, but also knowing that you provided the means for it to become possible, for justice and judgment to be carried out, for the mercy of God to simultaneously be expressed towards us, for it to be the greatest display of love, demonstration of love the world will ever see. Jesus, we thank you. Jesus, we find ourselves in this story, and we aren't proud of where we find ourselves. We're humbled that Jesus, you lift us up off of our knees, onto our feet again. You've brushed us off. You've taken our place. You've given us a new identity. You've clothed us, Scripture says, with beautiful imagery, with the clothes of righteousness that the righteousness of Christ is seen in us. Jesus, that we've taken your identity in place when you chose to take ours. Jesus, we thank you because Jesus, we needed you and you willingly gave yourself for us. Thank you again for listening to the Olive Branch Christian Fellowship Podcast. For more information about our church, go to olivebranchcf.org.